Hi, this is Graham Donaldson, co-host of Classical Stuff You Should Know, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe grew out of Lewis's experience of being stung back into childhood by his defeat at the hands of Elizabeth Anscombe at the Socratic Club. It awakened all sorts of deeply-seated fears in Lewis, not least his fear of women. Once the bullying hero of the hour had been cut down to size, he became a child, a little boy who was being degraded and shaken by a figure who, in his imagination, took on witch-like dimensions. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 41. The Case for Aslan. After Hours with David Marshall. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And at the moment, we are in Narnia month. And today's opening quotation comes from the pretty notorious C.S. Lewis biography by A.N. Wilson. And I quote it because this is addressed in a very interesting way by today's book, The Case for Aslan, Evidence for Jesus in the Land of Narnia, which is a book endorsed by two former guests of the show, Dr. John G. West and Dr. Lewis Marcos. Did Lewis retreat into stories because he was humiliated in a debate? Well, we'll find out about that and much more in today's interview with David Marshall. David Marshall is a writer and a teacher. He blogs over at Christ the Tao and has spent a good chunk of his life living in China. He's written many books, such as How Jesus Passes the Outside Test, The Inside Story, and the Faith Seeking Understanding Anthology. But he is here today to talk about the case for Aslan, evidence for Jesus in the land of Narnia. David Marshall, welcome to Pints for Jack. Thank you. Any friend of C.S. Lewis is a friend of mine, so good to meet you. <laughs> yes, and we were chatting before. You're currently in my old stomping grounds of Seattle. And at least from the video stream, it looks like the sun is shining there. And it immediately cast doubt on your statement that you were in Seattle, because I only ever remember rain. <laughs> you know, almost every city in Northern Europe gets a lot more rain and clouds than Seattle does. We put out that it rains constantly here in order to keep the Californians away. <laughs> it's a good strategy, but I do remember an awful lot of rain. Then again, a girl had just dumped me at the time, so who knows how my memory is playing tricks on me. <laughs> <laughs> but it depends on the season. Yes. No, it is true. I actually do remember the, the springs and the summers being actually quite gorgeous. Well, today I'm enjoying some chrysanthemum tea. Are you drinking anything? Oh, some fizzy stuff from the fridge. I've been up on the roof uh, roofing with my son, so... Uh... I needed something cold. Lovely. Well, cheers. Very often when I'm interviewing someone, I can find out a lot about them from Google and taking a look at their digital footprint on the internet. However, your digital footprint was very small, particularly for someone who also has a blog. So uh, for our listeners and for my own curiosity, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I, uh, I could call myself an apologist or an historian or a theologian. I'm not exactly sure what I am. Uh, you would think that by the time one, one reached my age, one would, would have figured that out, but I'm uh, also a teacher. I've taught in universities and I've taught in high schools as well. I've worked as a missionary in East Asia, and uh, some of the things that I did there when I was young, uh, I tried to help girls who had been forced into prostitution, tried to uh, rouse the church to go out into the red light district and do something about that. But more recently, I've mostly been teaching. And where did C.S. Lewis fit into your life and spiritual journey? 
Well, I grew up in Seattle, and uh, about the uh, end of the Vietnam War, Seattle in those days was a one-company one town. Boeing was the company. There was no Microsoft, no Amazon, no Starbucks. Imagine that. So when Boeing had a stop selling so many weapons to the, the uh, military during the, after the Vietnam War, the city went downhill economically, and my father was a builder. My father got a job up in Alaska doing some building up there. So we went all up to Alaska for about five or six years. And it was actually in Alaska that I had two encounters with C.S. Lewis, which had a big impact on my life. The first, when I was about in seventh grade, my parents were invited over to a friend's house after church service. And I went with them and got kind of bored of the adult conversation. So I went down into the basement below where there was a little library and I started picking up the Chronicles of Narnia and reading those. And that's, uh, that's when I started reading the, the Chronicles of Narnia. But later on, after spending some time in Alaska, coming back to Seattle, going to the University of Washington, uh, having a bit of a crisis of faith, working on a Russian fishing boat for a while as a translator, where in those days it wasn't a Russian fishing boat, it was a Soviet fishing boat. And it was still the communist era. So the idea of God, the idea of Christianity was scoffed at. And everybody was uh, nice to me because I was the company representative. I was the translator. But after a couple of months on the ship and after going to the University of Washington, I, I had some difficulty wondering. I was wondering if God was really there, to be honest. And uh, I went up to Alaska as a uh, counselor at a place called Echo Ranch Bible Camp. Mostly I counseled... Uh, uh, Sitka spruce. I climbed up the ladder with a chainsaw and cut branches off of trees. And one evening, everybody else was off doing something. And I was sitting in the uh, dining room thinking about life. And I picked up a copy of Mere Christianity. And I started reading that. The chapter that really got me was the chapter called The Great Sin of Pride. Hmm. And I realized from reading that chapter that I was proud and that dealing with my pride and with my arrogance and with my desire to be the big cheese, I guess, to get people's attention, uh, I realized that was going to be a challenge for me the rest of my life and that uh, I was a Christian already. I had become a Christian at the same, the same camp when I was 12 or 13 years old, but this was kind of a, a new commitment. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I heard that chapter also had a big effect on Chuck Colson. That was that was the chapter that got him as well. Yes, yes. He talks about that as well. Of course, he had more to be proud about by the time that he read that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> but pride is, is something that doesn't take a whole lot. It's like a little seed that'll grow just about anywhere. Hmm. Well, you just mentioned about a Russian fishing boat, and you live in China a lot of the time. How many languages do you speak? Uh, because I'm a book person, I probably read more languages than I speak, but I read modern and, and classical Chinese, and I used to read Russian, but I'm a little bit rusty on it. Some Japanese, I'm reading, you know, the New Testament in Koine Greek, that pretty much covers it. A little bit of French here and there. <laughs> Just to keep things interesting. I love it. <laughs> 
Well, I opened the episode by quoting Ann Wilson's biography of Lewis, where he makes various claims about Lewis's debate with Elizabeth Anscombe and Lewis's decision to write fairy tales. What do you make of Wilson's claims? Ann Wilson is the best of biographies and biographers and the worst of biographers. Is uh, <laughs> uh, When it comes to style and sometimes insight, he's the best. But it seems that he didn't feel like he needed to know his subject very well before he started writing about him. His biography of Jesus is also quite interesting, which was written before he returned to faith. So why did Lewis write the Chronicles of Narnia? Basically because he recognized it as the sort of genre, he's something he wanted to say. Well, there's a lot of different ways of putting it. He had a, a picture in his mind of a fawn walking through the forest famously, carrying a, a, an umbrella. What says something that I think is very interesting. He says, growing up consists of is not of leaving things behind that you enjoyed as a child, rather gaining something new. So, for example, he would say, now I enjoy, I don't remember which alcoholic beverage he was referring to. I didn't drink that when I was a child, but I still enjoy some of the drinks that I liked when I was a child. Lewis never left behind his love of the kinds of fairy tales and stories that Chronicles of Narnia belongs to. There's no mystery about that. Okay, so there's a few points here that I think are really quite interesting. First of all, the idea that C.S. Lewis was afraid of women is really quite remarkable, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. He hadn't married at that point, it's true. But if you read his correspondence, his correspondence with women is as respectful and engaged and humorous and the type of people that he corresponded with, like Ruth Witter and um, Dorothy Sayers, and a whole bunch of people like that, uh, all through her, her, his correspondence, you can you can see that no, he wasn't afraid of women at all. Often he corrected them. There's a certain kind of fear, I suppose, that consists of not being willing to speak up to a woman and and, and tell them that they're wrong. But he was certainly willing to banter with them and have fun and joke and disagree, uh, laugh at them and receive correction from them. There's no hint or trace of fear of women as a whole in Lewis's relationships with female sex. So that's, that's just, to me, it's quite ridiculous. As for his famous debate with Elizabeth Anscombe, of course, uh, lots of people have written about that. You could say that Lewis lost a few points in that debate. There's no doubt about it, but he wasn't traumatized by it. And the other fact is that after that debate, he often engaged in apologetics. He didn't stop doing that. I think one of his most powerful bits of apologetics, maybe is not book length, but Fernseed and Elephants, uh, to my mind, is one of the strongest arguments for the Gospels that has ever been written. And I think it still applies to the contemporary scene, the contemporary scene of uh, New Testament scholarship. Now, one of the themes of my book, The Case for Aslan, is that Lewis's arguments for the Christian faith were good when he gave them, but they've even become stronger since then, rather than becoming weaker. So if you look at the contemporary debate over the historical Jesus, whether you're talking about the Jesus Seminar, or you're talking about Bart Ehrman, or even really radical New Testament scholars, or people who consider themselves New Testament scholars, like Richard Carrier, or uh, Price, or other people like that, I think that Lewis's arguments have not weakened over time, but have actually become stronger over time. And 
they have a lot to teach people who are engaged in apologetics and also have a lot to teach people who are engaged in New Testament scholarship because New Testament scholarship tends to become a little too narrow at times. What Lewis brings to it is a kind of a wealth of understanding of historical literature and, and the history of literature and the, uh, the inside, the psychology of literature, how you write great literature. He brings those elements to his understanding of the Gospels, which most New Testament scholars, frankly, cannot replicate. You get a few scholars like N.T. Wright, for example, who write at a very high level and with great insight and, and uh, psychological insight. Uh, but most New Testament scholars don't, don't have that kind of literary acumen that Lewis has. This is getting a little off the track, I guess, not answering your question entirely. But I think a lot of Lewis's best apologetic writings actually came after uh, his debate with Anscombe. Mm -hmm. And even as Reppert points out, when he corrected miracles, he didn't have to correct a whole lot. He just made a few, a few changes in it. And to be frank, I don't agree with Lewis on everything when it comes to uh, some of his arguments in that book either. I think I would agree with you that some of his strongest apologetics comes later, um, but it's not necessarily in the, that literary genre. And that's a nice bridge into your book, because over the past few days I've been reading The Case of Aslan, uh, subtitle is Evidence for Jesus in the Land of Narnia. So before we crack open the book itself and discuss some of its contents, how did it come about in the first place? Well, C.S. Lewis has always been my favorite author, and I tend to write on big subjects such as uh, one of my books is called The Truth Behind the New Atheism. Another one is on the historical Jesus and on how Christianity relates to Chinese culture. Even when I wrote my doctoral dissertation, our advisors, our, our professors told us, you really need to pick some really tiny topic that you can become the world's expert on and nobody else knows anything about it. That's how you do a PhD. And I said, no, I don't think I want to spend six years doing it that way. That's just no fun. So what I did was I tried to create a philosophy of a, a theology of religions, how Christianity relates to other religions. Um, so writing about C.S. Lewis in particular, in some ways, was almost the first time I've focused on one person or on one fairly narrow topic. Even in that sense, Lewis is a, a means of focusing my interest in how Christianity can be defended, both in terms of its truth and also in terms of its value for the world. Hmm. And there are a few chapters I'd like to talk about in detail, but would you mind just giving our listeners an overview of how the book is structured and the sort of material that you're covering? We cover almost every important theme in apologetics, including the crucifixion, the miracles of Jesus, the credibility of the Gospels, the idea of the incarnation relating, of course, to Aslan, temptation, creation, which of course involves us a little bit with uh, astronomy and, and sciences and how th where things come to being. I think Lewis's approach to that in uh, The Magician's Nephew is particularly interesting. Hmm. And the whole idea of how we know things, how we can tell, you know, uh, w whether what we believe is true. I also talk about the resurrection of Jesus and the idea of judgment. And then I talk about my own, you know, my own academic interest in uh, how Christianity relates to other religions before finally we venture into the realm of uh, the search for justice. In that case, we have a, have a chapter which is set in Seattle at Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, which was famous about three years ago, where we have a conversation between 
some critics of Lewis and one mysterious defender of Lewis. And uh, we de- delve into what might, what might be called, generally speaking, uh, cancel culture and whether or not the Chronicles of Narnia should be canceled or children should be allowed to read them. <laughs> so we cover a lot. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you're linking all of this, not just to Narnia, but a lot of other of books by Lewis. I think probably one of the best chapters to give our listeners a flavor of your book is the opening chapter, Puddleglum's Wager, Is Narnia Just a Dream? And this is clearly a reference to The Silver Chair, where there is a debate in the underworld. What do you talk about in that chapter? I compare Puddleglum to Alvin Plantinga. Lots of peas. Plato. <laughs> of course, Lewis was a fan of Plato. And uh, whatever you can say about Plato's ideas, uh, G.K. Chesterton called him the father of Faddis. Well, <laughs> Plato had his some bad ideas, such as the idea that uh, marriage, parents shouldn't know who their children are in the ideal state. They had some flaky ideas, as Chesterton pointed out. But he was really one of the great writers of the ancient world. And he had a, a gift for describing philosophical concepts through picture stories. And one of his great stories, of course, was the allegory of the cave. In the allegory of the cave, Plato says, a man has been born into a, a dark, dark cave as a slave, and he, he's never been outside of the cave. And this cave is a picture of the world. And all he can see are images cast by a fire in front of him. So he doesn't see the actual animals or people, but he only sees images of the animals on the wall cast by the fire as they walk behind him because he's chained to face in one direction. This is an image, said Plato, of our world. We don't see things as they actually are. We don't see the true ultimate reality. But one day one, a person escaped from that cave and then came back and described, hey, I went out of this place where there's sunshine and there's trees and there's plants. You're slaves. You're living in bondage. And all the people in the cave became very angry at him. Well, this picture of the cave is basically uh, Puddleglum and his two friends, two human friends, picture of their expedition through the underworld. C.S. Lewis is very obviously using this great uh, allegory of the cave to describe our condition in the world and whether we should believe in God, basically, whether we can believe that there is a world beyond the plants and animals around us, or whether this is the ultimate, the only, only place there is. It's very similar to his story of the Pilgrim's Regress. In Pilgrim's Regress, which is the first book that he wrote after he became a Christian, he describes how his hero, John, is traveling, trying, trying to find these mysterious, beautiful islands that he's seeking for. And he finds himself imprisoned, again, underground in a dark, dark dungeon where, he, where a giant looks into the prison where he's in prison, where John is imprisoned. And every time the giant's eyes shines through the bars of the window, people can see right through each other. So what Lewis is arguing against here is the, uh, the idea of reductionism, the idea that we are only flesh and bone. We are only bones. Our brains are only cells. Uh, they're only you know synaptic reactions. This is what Lewis had been stumped by before he became a Christian what can generally be called reductionism. And the particular person who introduced him to that prison cell was, uh, was uh, Sigmund Freud. Gives him a different name, but Sigmund Freud, basically. Uh, and, and this is also the concept that Lewis talked about when he talked about bulverism. The idea that something is only this, or, or we can reduce all of science and all of art to 
animal impulses, for example, the desire for, you know, perpetuating the species or class rebellion or something like that. This is a, a very common idea in his day, and it's also a very common idea in our day. So the witch makes the play that the only world is her world, this yes. underground world. And Puddleglum responds by saying that the world that they claim to have been in once uh, is even better, and that they're going to be Narnians even if there is no Narnia. They will believe in Aslan even if there is no Aslan. Yes. And here we get to one of the other Ps that you compare him to, Pascal. Blaise Pascal, who had his famous wager, which is very often misunderstood. Would you mind unpacking that part of it? Exactly. Some people misunderstand Puddleglum and think that Puddleglum is just saying, well, I like the idea of Narnia better than I like your underworld. So even though there's no evidence for it, there's no reason to believe it, I'm going to continue believing it anyway. And people make the same argument against Pascal. They think Pascal's wager by the way, people who argue against Pascal's wager inevitably have failed to read Pensee. They've failed to read Pascal himself. Mm -hmm. They talk about it without knowing what Pascal actually says in the rest of the book. And that kind of microfocus is going on when people make the same complaint about Puddleglum. Because, of course, Puddleglum had every reason to believe in Narnia. He, he was born there. All of his memories had to do with Narnia. His friends also could confirm much of what he said. This was not actually a situation, very much like pa Pascal says, the temptation to foolishness or the denial of reason is, is not from Puddleglum, and it's not from Pascal. It's actually from their opponents. Because first, Puddleglum and Jill and Eustace and Prince Rillian uh, are subject to a couple of enchantments which confuse their minds. First of all, drugs. Yeah, music and drugs. <laughs> Pour some drugs on the fire. And some a musical instrument which is strummed. The whole picture of, of what's going on here is exactly the opposite of what the critics say. Puddleglum is rescuing his friends from irrationality. And if you read the rest of Pascal's Pensee, you find that Pascal actually made strong arguments for the Christian faith. He wasn't saying, uh, well, you know, there's no reason to believe in God, but you might as well believe anyway because you win if you believe in God and uh, you'll go to heaven if you believe in God and you're right. But if you're wrong, it doesn't matter because you're going to die anyway. It doesn't really matter. Atheism. So that isn't what Pascal was saying at all. Pascal was saying there is good evidence for the Christian faith and he gives it in the rest of his book. But our minds have been fogged. The uh, Emerald Queen, or whatever her, whatever her name is. The Lady of the Green Kirtle. The Lady of the Green Kirtle, yes. She has poured some chemicals onto the fire, and she's been strumming her little stringed instrument, and that has con confused our minds. But it still makes sense, given our situation, to gamble on Christ. So Pascal was, you know, he helped invent the computer. He was a guy who liked numbers. He liked probability. So he, he was basically saying, yeah, it makes sense. Life is a gamble. Wherever we choose, whatever we choose to do, we have to do something and we have to make some sort of a choice. And this is kind of what Peter said when he said to Jesus, after Jesus said something very strange and mysterious and they didn't, the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about, drink my blood. What does that mean? And 
Jesus said, well, uh, are you going to leave too? Everybody else has left. And Peter says, where would I go? You have the words of life. Or another gospel example would be, of course, the pearl of great price. We found that one pearl, that one thing that's worth everything. That is the sort of gamble that Pascal is talking about and Pablo Guam is talking about. Wonderful. Well, the second chapter is called The Lion's Song, a reference to the creation of Narnia in the book, which we've actually just been reading this month, The Magician's Nephew. Okay, you, you, you're interviewing people at C.S. Loso. Tell me, what, you're, what is your favorite uh, of the Chronicles of Narnia? Oh, uh, I'm going to say The Horse and His Boy. I hated it as a child. Uh, I think it was because one of the main characters was a girl. <laughs> uh, but I returned to it as an adult when I reread the Chronicles for the first time since childhood, when I read them uh, once more in my 20s. That one stood out to me, I think, because it's all about the hidden God. It's all about somebody trying to do something that is dangerous and scary, and he's looking around, and it, he just feels like he's the unluckiest person in the world. And it's only later that he is told, I was the lion. Also in that book, Lewis introduced the idea that you can you can fry uh, mushrooms for breakfast. That had a big imp impact on me when I was a boy. <laughs> well, as an Englishman used to full breakfast, that, that just seems like good sense to me. <laughs> so your second chapter is The Lion's Song, and it's a reference to the creation of Narnia. And it's the book which we also read at the beginning of this this season's Narnia month, The Magician's Nephew. And so I was reading that and I was also delighted to see that there were lots of references to the book, which we've read this season over the course of this season out of the silent planet, given the connections between uh, people like Uncle Andrew and Weston. What are some of the issues that you explore in this, in this chapter? Well, there's a, of course, the, the creation is part of what we're talking about in that chapter, um, but also the nature of scientific evil, I guess you could say. Now, Christians have different ideas about how God created things, and I find that I'm able to avoid those debates to a certain extent in that chapter, even though I have my own opinions, mm -hmm. uh, because Lewis kind of goes deeper, I think, in some ways than our ordinary debates about how exactly God created the universe. Aslan creates Narnia through a song. What is a song? A song is a pattern of sounds, a melody and a beat. And top-notch scientists who are talking about the origin of the universe, they often bring those very elements into their the discussion, whether they're Christians or not. Uh, the universe seems to be a song in some, in some ways. How the, the quarks united into atoms and the atoms into molecules and the molecules into more complex molecules, uh, you know, with the carbon-based chains and whatnot. A lot of, whether they're physicists or astronomers or, or biologists, many scientists are just astounded by the, the sheer mathematical beauty of creation and of, of the natural world, what is often called fine-tuning. So for those who don't know the story, a motley crew of humans, a witch, a horse, find themselves in a very dark place, some other world through a, through a series of events, uh, which has no light, has no pretty much nothing yet. The witch says it's an empty world. There's there's nothing there. 
they wait there for a little while until finally they hear a, a song on the horizon. And the song seems to correspond with the appearance of different things in that world, beginning with the sun, with the stars, the sun, and then gently waving grass that comes rippling across the valleys. And the whole plant kingdom emerges, and then the animals begin to pop out of their holes in the ground. What is Lewis saying about creation in this story? He's not necessarily saying that he has a particular theory about how the world came into being, but that there is a melody, a pattern behind it, which could be could described as a song. And one of my favorite philosophers is the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu. And Lao Tzu's famous description of creation was Tao Shang Yi, Yi Shang Er, Er Shang San, San Shang Wu, Wan Wu. The Tao gives birth to the one. The one gives birth to the two. The two gives birth to the three. And the three gives birth to all things. Now, some people will say maybe that's the Trinity. Lao Tzu doesn't describe the exact sequence or he doesn't give a scientific explanation for how things came into being. But I think there is something, an agreement here between C.S. Lewis and the great Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu that how God brings things into being, there's a process there. And we can intuit it from what we see of creation, we can feel the echoes of that song in our hearts as we walk through the woods or up a mountain or walk along the sea, even if we can't precisely define exactly how God brought things into being. But you can go quite deep in that scientifically as well. And people have, talking about the the odds against the gravitational constant or, or different scientific problems the lack of entropy of the universe in its original state, according to Roger Penrose and, and different people like that. We'll talk about that. And they'll go into great detail and they'll say, you know, if you compare the creation of the universe to an orchestra playing, say, uh, one of Tchaikovsky's or, or Beethoven's great symphonies, the odds against getting all the pieces in place and things coming into being just as exactly as they are, they are they're actually much higher. It's much less likely that the universe would be as well coordinated as it as it is then you'd get all these instruments to come in just at the right time to create you know uh Tchaikovsky's fifth symphony or something like that hmm. that that's one point there was a comedy geo in england called morkman wise and i remember there was one sketch where some famous pianist was on the show and one of the hosts went to go and play one of his pieces and the pianist came in and said, you're doing it all wrong. You're playing all the wrong notes. He says, no, I'm playing all the right notes, just not necessarily in the right order. <laughs> and so that coordination is kind of important if you're going to produce a, a piece of art or a universe that functions. Yes. And the other side of it, and some people have criticized Lewis for being supposedly anti-science. He wasn't a scientist. Um, he could be rather naive in some ways. For example, Out of the Silent Planet or Paralandra. The, his description of the scientific principles on which the spaceship ran in going to Mars are pretty far-fetched. I don't think you're going to find enough energy in the you know, undiscovered, less observed properties of uh, <laughs> sunbeams or whatever he says. <laughs> mm -hmm. Later on, he realized, well, I probably shouldn't have done that. I probably just made it overtly supernatural and, and not tried to make it sound scientific at all. So he wasn't a scientist. He had a very keen interest in science, but some people accused him of you know having an end for scientists because the bad guy in Out of the Silent Planet and in Paralandra is in fact Weston, who is 
a great scientist and also possessed by the devil and trying to, you know, tempt a new Eve into falling and destroying God's creation on the planet Venus. Um, and then, of course, in the final book of that series, That Hideous Strength, Lewis tries to explain that I'm not going after scientists necessarily. He says, he, he puts one of his characters is a scientist and he says, you know, I'm not going to join the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments or NICE because this has nothing to do with science. It's all about politics. But on the other hand, it's perfectly true that science is a very dangerous thing. And I don't think anybody looking around the world today could deny that. Mm-hmm. Are human beings going to survive at all? That's a question that's raised by scientific progress. We can't be naive. And very many periods in history, uh, you know, the, even C.S. Lewis fought in World War I, of course, and then you have the introduction of new technologies for killing people in, in large numbers, mm-hmm. including poison gases. And I think, you know, millions of people were poisoned by mustard gas. I think one of my my grandfather's brothers was poisoned by mustard gas. These were new technologies which scientists invented. So you can't be naive and say that science is not a dangerous thing. Uncle Andrew in The Magician's Nephew is a picture of that. Uh, it's not that he loves science too much. It's that he loves science without recognizing why he loves it. He loves it for the same reason that Eve loved the apple and that Adam loved the apple. Because by picking that apple, he can become as gods, knowing good and evil. So the danger that Lewis is pointing to is not science per se, but the danger of power in general and how we make use of the powers before us. It's a question that is a problem that has been become even more important, I think, over in the years since C.S. Lewis wrote that book. Mm-hmm. As we look around the world today and we consider what Vladimir Putin's up to and we consider what AI might, might produce in the next few years, C.S. Lewis's concern has is, is become an even more live topic. And his book, the abolition of man has become rather prophetic. Yeah. And you see the, a very similar philosophy working working through nearly all of those books. Uh, since we've just been talking about The Magician's Nephew, Uncle Andrew and Jadis have a very similar uh, philosophy of life. It's basically that the rule, the Tao, doesn't apply to me. Yeah. I can try and use it to manipulate other people, like, hey, Diggory, I hope you're not a coward. I hope you're going to Go after that girl. I hope you're more chivalrous. Yeah. But as far as he's concerned, he can break any of the rules he wants to because, well, for want of a, a, a better expression, he's special. Yes. Uncle Andrew, of course, is very much like the Empress Jada, Jadis. They are, uh, the only difference between them is one of them has power and, and the other one has less, much less power. Mm-hmm. And it can end with the deplorable word. It can end with a deplorable wor- word. And as Aslan points out, Human beings are working on their own version of the deplorable word, as he as he wrote that book and also at the present as well. Wow, that got dark. Well, <laughs> let's move to something ironically a little bit more cheerful, because at the end of the last battle, there is a question mark over the fate of Susan Pevensey. And we did talk about this a little bit in an episode on racism and sexism. That was season five, episode 54, where I interviewed Dr. Devon Brown. And we will dig into this question again when we do The Last Battle next season. But I love what you did in your book, because when children wrote to Lewis asking him about what happened to Susan, because despite what some people say, 
we actually don't get the end of her story. Uh, he said that her adventure wasn't over yet, and perhaps they should take up her story and try and write it themselves. And that's what you do in chapter five. So in your head canon, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about what happens to Susan next? Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that chapter. It was, I think it was my favorite. So Susan is an adult now. I don't try to give all the backstory about exactly how this works out technologically or in current chronology. It may be that uh, Professor Kirk, maybe he's gone off to the uh, wood between the worlds for a while, and maybe this, that makes the time work out, or maybe we could just pretend it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But they have cell phones now. I love the fact that you've even thought about that. That's great. <laughs> and Professor Kirk, it turns out he teaches at Oxford University. And uh, I, I imagine him actually at Wadham College. So I imagine this taking place at Wadham College. Uh, and Professor Kirk is, has not seen Susan for quite a few years because, frankly, Susan has gone off the deep end after her terrible experience of losing all her family in a single day, basically. She was trying to be too grown up, they said. She was some, in some ways too childish, in some ways trying to be too adult at the same time. Uh, and she was caught up with trivial things like, you know, dates and clothing and not sex, as some people say. Her problem was not that she loved some boy too much. Her problem was that she was too caught up in her own uh, trivial concerns. It wasn't about the boy. It was about herself. It was vanity that, that was her temptation. So after this horrible disaster happens with the train, Susan is lost to the world for several years. Uh, what she does exactly, I don't try to follow her, to try to trace her, her route. But she's basically going in a downward direction. Until finally she decides to go and visit her old friend, Professor Kirk, who it turns out actually did not die in the train crash like everybody else. And uh, she turns up at his office and they have a conversation. Uh, she wants to know did I imagine it all? Is it possible? Okay, I can't get back to Narnia, but perhaps Aslan promised that I would know him in this in our world by another name. Is that possible? Everybody knows who we're talking about because we're at Oxford University after all, and half the colleges are named for a guy named Jesus or Christ <laughs> or one of his disciples, Magdalene. So... If I can't get back to Narnia, perhaps I can find Aslan through learning about Jesus and whether Jesus is the, the, the reality in our world of which Aslan is a picture in the other world. And therefore, I have to find out if the story of Jesus in the Gospels is true. But there's a lot of people who say it's not true. We have volumes, libraries full of, of books saying that the, Gospels, the Gospel story is really not very reliable. So in my version of the story, Susan goes on a quest for the historical Jesus, and then she comes up, she visits Professor Kirk, and she has some questions to ask him, and they have a conversation over that question. I love it. I don't want you to say any more. I want people to go and get the book and uh, read their conversation for themselves. The second half of the conversation takes place at the Mitre, which is my favorite pub in Oxford. <laughs> good choice. Good choice. David Marshall, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Good to meet you. As the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell us where people can go to find out more about you and pick up a copy of The Case for Aslan? You can follow my writings at The Stream. Uh, I, I write quite a bit there. And of course, uh, 
my first book was True Son of Heaven, How Jesus Fulfills the Chinese Culture. And I'm putting out a new version of that pretty soon also. Lovely. I'll put links in the show notes. Thanks again to David Marshall for coming on the show. Thanks to our audio engineers, Taylor and Sarah. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. Matt1, Matt2, Matt3, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for you all every week and all of the prayer requests on our Slack channel every Tuesday. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. And please join us next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.